Dig with August Falchi Europe. Welcome to European Network series on 50 years of Ireland in the European Union. My name is Ken Sweeney and I'll be your introduction into fascinating conversations on Ireland's story in the EU. We'll be chatting with very special guests about their experiences, feelings and opinions on the Irish adventure in Europe. So I hope you'll stay with us for what we promise will be an exciting series of conversations and debates. The Communicating Europe initiative provides funding to voluntary organisations, educational bodies and civil society groups and bodies for projects intended to deepen public awareness of the role that the European Union plays in our daily lives. It also improves the quality and accessibility of public information on European issues at local, regional or national level. Projects communicate European issues, the role of the European Union and Ireland's place in Europe. Hello and welcome to European Network's Ireland EU50 podcast. My name is Ken Sweeney and in this series we will be complementing our collection of articles that have been published over the last 18 months on the European Network's website that celebrate 50 years of Ireland in the European Union. Each episode will feature one of our contributing writers as a guest and we will talk about their article and delve deeper into the topics and stories that they write about. In this episode, our guest is journalist Valerie Cox. Valerie has worked with all the Irish national newspapers and spent 24 years working with RTE on Morning Ireland, Drive Time and on the Today Show with Pat Kenny and Sean O'Rourke, covering everything from current affairs to the District Court. And in her article for the EU50 series, Valerie discusses just how far Ireland has gone over the last 50 years of membership and examines the realisation that we are all one that we can work together to create not only a better Europe as in the original EEC, but a better world for everyone. Valerie is talking with the European Network's Leonard Van Otterloo, so let's go to that interview now. So Valerie, you have a 50-year experience as a journalist and uh, will have interviewed a lot of people, but this time we're going to change uh, turn the tables a bit and, and I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions uh, about your, the piece that you've written for the European Network about how you were 22 when Ireland joined the European Union. I'd, you describe how it felt as a change almost as soon as, as, as Ireland joined. And personally, I'm always amazed that I, I've had to see it from a distance, of course, how much Ireland has changed in, in, in just a few decades and, and, and then the influence, influence of the church has reduced and, went from essentially a poor country to one of Europe's richest countries. And you know, nowadays, actually, unfortunately, Irish people emigrate because the country's too expensive instead of because it's too poor. Mm-hmm. How do you think the, the role of EU membership has, has played in all these changes in Ireland that we've seen? Well, Leonard, I think, first of all, you've got to go back to the beginning and look at what Ireland was like in 1973. I mean, as you say, it was a very poor country. Eamon de Valera was president. He was 90 years old at the time. And we ha- had quite an exciting year in politics because Fine Gael and Labour ended 18 years of Fianna Fáil government. It was also the death of Archbishop John Charles McQuaid, who had run the church in Ireland for so many years. And in those days, people fasted on Fridays. Lent was observed. It was a very Catholic country. And neighbours were always almost watching one another to make sure that they observed these things. You go to any little rural parish in the country and there'd be huge numbers going to Mass. And if somebody wasn't there, people would ask, you know, who's missing? Why weren't they there? It was a country where the uh, priests were absolutely revered, where the church was held in very, very high regard. And suddenly we joined the EU and 
things did begin to change. Now, the death of Archbishop McQuaid, I think, was one thing. But also, we had this, as young people, we had this romantic idea of what Europe really was. I mean, most of us had never been to Europe at that stage. Most of us, had, well, I had been once, I'd been to France, but most of us had never been anywhere except maybe the UK. And we had these visions, you know, a world where the Pope had his own republic, um, where Grace Kelly, the film star, an Irish woman, she became a princess. And we'd seen these pictures of gondolas sailing down the streets in Venice. And we'd heard of people who wore clogs and all of that. So it was a fascinating thing to see that Ireland was becoming part of this. And we were we felt that we could almost tippy-toe past the UK and head for this great mainland of Europe. Yes, yes, I can I can picture it. And that that suddenly the just the membership changed that. You suddenly felt like that door opened. Absolutely. And the other thing that was very important was that lots of jobs suddenly began to appear for young people in Brussels. And you'd see these job advertisements that we'd never seen before. And, you know, this was just such an amazing thing. Some of my friends applied to work with the EU and they got jobs abroad. Some of them never came back. Some of them did. But the interesting thing was that we all saw this as free holidays. <laughs> we could go visit them and we could see all these countries. And, you know, some years later, it became so much easier for young people. But back then, we didn't have Ryanair. We didn't have cheap travel. And I don't think young people today realise how difficult travel actually was. I mean, for example, 1980, um, me and my husband and children went to live in Berlin. Uh, we went just after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And my own children um, studied in Germany, went to college in Germany, did the Erasmus year. They went to Milan, they went to Nuremberg, they went to Berlin, and they did it. Or they hopped on those planes almost like hopping on a bus. Um, it was so different from my generation. Yes, I could see that. Yes, the world is, is had became a lot bigger or smaller, if you will. Yes, I, uh, I, I, if I listen to my parents, um, for whom going to Spain once was was like going to the other side of the world. Uh, and you know how easy I now go to Spain, for instance. That's that's it, it's true. Yes, I, I I'm originally Dutch, uh, which is also not a, a very large country. And uh, funny enough, the, the the Dutch like to see themselves not as a small country in, in the EU, but more as a, the smaller of the medium sized countries. Which yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> think of that, if you will, what you will. But uh, there's always been a concern about the, the smaller member states that that, that you know that there, there's a few big countries in the EU that, that that actually run the show and that push things through. Do you, do you feel, because you touch upon that a bit, that, that you, on the one hand, felt you were suddenly part of this big family, but you know some members were a bit bigger than others. Do you feel that Ireland has sort of joined the, the, the decision makers, that, they, they, that the Irish voices are being heard? Well, in one sense, no, they haven't. And I remember being quite shocked when you'd hear all of these, um, you know, decisions being taken at EU level and you wouldn't really hear Irish voices. But then some of our top politicians here, and you've got to remember at that stage, politically, Ireland was a very small place. We just had mainly the, the three main parties and we'd so few politicians that everybody knew who they were. 
I mean, today you've got lots and lots of parties and there's lots of people, lots of TDs even, that you may never have heard of. But then in the first year, there were no elections. The Oireachtas decided, the government decided on who they would send to Brussels. And we did send some very big names. Um, we sent Richard Burke. Uh, we had Patrick Hillary, Phil Hogan, uh, Peter Sutherland, Mary McGuinness. And I think that made a difference because these people were so well known that we watched out for them. And they got into very senior positions. They were commissioners and they were able to make a difference. The other thing is, I think we sent some very good commissioners who were determined when they got to Europe to get their hands on a decent portfolio so that we could dominate things like agriculture, for instance, which was awfully important to Ireland because in 1973, the whole country depended on agriculture and it was a really, really backward agriculture. And then the money started to come in and the farmers got uh, various allowances. The billions came in from Europe to change the way we handled the land and build an infrastructure, build serious roads that didn't have grass growing down the middle of them. <laughs> uh, no, there's been negatives as well. I mean, this big issue of, you know, trying to stop the cows farting is one major issue because, of course, we've so, we so many cattle in the country. But also, the environmentally, the ban on working our ancient peat bogs has been a major problem here because the farmers always worked the local bog. They always had an acre or a half acre and brought home their own turf. And in Ireland, uh, the surveillance by the EU would not have been appreciated here. I mean, whole families would go out to the bogs for the day and they'd cut away. The kids would help stacking the sods of turf. They'd make tea out in the bog. It would be a day. And it was a wonderful rural way of life. And today now, we've got surveillance planes flying over the bogs, trying to catch the poor farmers out cutting a few sods of turf, reporting from the plane to the local garden station and when the guy leaves the bog, the guards are waiting for him. That is a, a, a quite a clear change as a result of, of, of membership. Um, oh yes, there's yes. a reason though why they why they do that, right? I, I think I read something about the the peat bogs. Oh no, no, <laughs> very good reasons. But it does it has been one maybe negative thing. It's seen quite negatively by many people because it has changed a little bit of rural Ireland. You mentioned um, uh, about sending more senior or very experienced politicians to to brussels and obviously that is i think a, a problem that um the that the uk has has had is that they well apparently they did up until the 1980s but at some point they stopped sending their best people to brussels and maybe that is when the 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 the, the seeds of, of what later became brexit i think were, were sown that if you don't have your best people there if it's sort of a, a retirement for ex-politicians instead of uh, the you know the top job, then yeah. you lose that sort of influence. And I think Ireland understood that pretty well that you actually have to send your your most senior people. Yeah, you do. I mean, you don't just send your senior civil servants. You have to send people who understand who they're dealing with and who are capable. And that was one of the problems we had in the early days because very few people spoke a fluent French or Spanish or German or whatever was needed. But I think in that regard, we've made great strides because our politicians have tried to learn various languages to be able to communicate properly. I mean, you might say, you know, English is the language, but at the same time, you really need to be able to speak several others as well. Yes, yes, I agree. I, I think I think it's even for 
not for politicians, but for civil servants in the, in Brussels, it's compulsory, I think, to have, I forgot how many it is, but I think English doesn't count as a second language, uh, I think, I believe. We just mentioned Brexit, and, and obviously Ireland is, is, of all the countries in, in, in Europe, uh, except for the UK itself, it was the country that was the hardest hit or is the hardest hit by Brexit. Uh, do you feel that that whole process has brought Ireland actually closer to the continent and, and closer to the rest of the European Union? Absolutely, Leonard, because uh, we feel that the UK has let us down in many ways. Um, there's a lot of impact on our lives. Certain shops might have empty shelves because they can't get imports. Because remember, we were very, very close to the UK um, with you know very high imports and exports between us. But um, the, all of the new tariffs they've brought in have badly affected Ireland. Um, for example, one of my daughters ordered a coat from a British chain. And when she arrived, they looked for €269 Euro in duty on the coat, which, of course, we promptly sent back. But that's the kind of nonsense that we're putting with or putting up with all of the time. It's a difficult situation with the North as well, because we're operating on two very, very different tariffs. Um, obviously, there's a lot of work going on at the moment trying to sort all of this out. And I think that will be sorted. But there's a lot of antagonism at the moment between the UK and Ireland. And for example, even um, recently, we had Joe Biden visit to Ireland. And if you read the British newspapers at the time, uh, they just keep taking swipes at the visit and, you know, trying to make uh, Joe Biden look like one of these old paddy cartoons of old because of his fondness for Ireland rather than the UK, I suppose. So it's not a good place at the moment. I think it'll probably settle down. I think a lot of people in the UK, of course, they voted for Brexit without actually knowing uh, what the consequences would be. And although they were warned about it, most people couldn't have figured out the consequences until well after it had happened. Um, for example, in the last few days now, I've heard that even the Orient Express has cancelled the leg of the journey from London to um, the boat uh, to cross over to Paris. And they're just going to start the Orient Express in Paris now, which is so sad because that began in the 1880s. But they just have to do that because they can't cope with the bureaucracy of that little trip from London down to the coast. Yes, yes, I, I read that story too. It's indeed, a, it's indeed a shame because it was originally from London. I mean, it makes sense to to cut that bit out, but it's a it's a historic shame. It's funny though because at the same time, you see, I think we've all seen those maps of how there are now suddenly so many ferry routes um, from Ireland around uh, Great Britain. Uh, going straight to France, straight to Belgium, uh, that didn't exist before or, or barely. I think they went from six to like 32 routes because everyone now is avoiding Great Britain. And it, it actually comes a bit, a bit back to your, your first point that when Ireland joined, it was not it was no longer that dependent on, on the, the big neighbour, if you will. It was no longer a, almost like an appendix. It became its own, it had its own relationship with the continent. And, you know, it was... It was a time when so many Irish people worked in Britain or members of families. I mean, hordes of Irish people went to Britain. Uh, they made the roads in Britain. They built in Britain. They went up to Scotland and they fished. Um, they, the taties as well, the potatoes. They worked on potato farms in Scotland. I mean, it was a really, really big thing. And uh, 
certainly, well, that doesn't happen now because we have so many other options. But I think the EU has been instrumental in that as well, in providing other opportunities for people and making it easy. Because, you know, once we joined the EU, it meant we could study in Europe if we wanted to. We could work in Europe. We could live in Europe with very little red tape. And that's a very important issue that maybe people have even forgotten about now because it's so easy. Yes, it just becomes the new normal. Mm-hmm. So what what do you think is next for, for Ireland in, in the European Union? Well, you know, I think there's an awful lot of things that the European Union could do that, you know, there are still huge challenges that we haven't sorted. I mean, we've got the major housing problem. We've got social inequality, unemployment, climate change. And at the moment, of course, we've got migration issues um, all over the EU. And that is such a difficult one. It seems to be one, though, that where the EU is just working on reactions the entire time rather than thinking out plans to cover maybe the next 10 years. I mean, at one stage um, in 2015, uh, my husband and I worked as volunteers with the refugees on the Greek islands. And we'd stand on the beaches all night helping to pull in the boats because so many people would drown in the shallows. So you had to wade out. They panicked. And because it's, you know, it's a major, major commercial sea route they were crossing about six miles from Bodrum in Turkey um, over to, say, the island of Chios and Kos. And you'd go out and you'd have to pull them in. But they hadn't a clue where they were going next. And Europe at that stage behaved extremely badly and brought in so many difficulties, so many barriers. I mean, on the island I was on at that stage, they brought in a rule that um, potential immigrants coming, and remember, we're not talking about economic migrants at that stage, maybe one or two, but we are talking about people coming from the most awful misery in places like Syria. And what they did was they um, made a rule that if taxi drivers gave them a lift, they would be fined. When it rained all night, they wouldn't let them into any of the buildings. And then they made a rule that they had to register at 4 a.m. at the police station. Now, I mean, that was terrible cruelty to our fellow human beings. And Europe at that stage, I think, should have gotten in much quicker and brought in, if they had gotten in early and said, okay, Angela Merkel at that stage was, of course, taking anybody and everybody into Germany. She said, fine, the borders are open. Um, But the backlog to all of the other countries, people were living in fields, in their thousands, in horrible refugee camps. They were dying. They were dying of hunger. They were dying of ill health, no one to look after them. And we put people in that position as a continent. And I really do think Europe should have stood in then and made proper provision. And if they had, we wouldn't have the migration issues we have now because there would be clear channels. And it wouldn't be a question of, you know, paying France to get rid of the problem. This sort of thing, which is absolutely ridiculous. We've behaved very, very badly over the whole migration issue. And we're suffering for it now. And it's probably going to go on for a long, long time. In Ireland, of course, we've had um, a huge number of Ukrainians come to the country. And they've been welcomed. They really, really have. But we have also had terrible housing issues. So that's caused a bit of a problem. People are welcome. But what do you do with them? Where do you put them? This should have been sorted from 2015 onwards, and we wouldn't have that problem today. The other big issue that I see coming up, and I think the EU 
have not done, they've done very little on it. They've produced a few sort of pretty handouts and little videos, that kind of thing. We need to look at media freedom. The number of attacks on journalists in Europe just keep going up all the time. And the we, in Europe, we had our warnings about this. We had the Charlie Hebdo shootings in 2015. That's eight years ago now. Twelve journalists were murdered on that day. And that's still gone on. Now, an attack on journalists is an attack on democracy. We need trustworthy, impartial reporting. It's all part of free speech. And it is a thistle that, and maybe a whole bunch of thistles, that the EU needs to tackle and do something about. Because we cannot have journalists who are afraid to work because of the repercussions. They have to know that the EU is protecting them and supporting them. The Ireland EU50 podcast is a production by the European Network in conjunction with the Communicating Europe Initiative. Production and editing by Ken Sweeney. Interview notes by Brian Mill, Francis Cowell and Leonard van Otterloo. Hosted by Ken Sweeney with additional support by Brian Mill, Francis Cowell and Leonard van Otterloo. Special thanks to our guests and contributors for taking the time to make this series possible. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or comment on your preferred podcast platforms and you can access our website at the europeannetwork.eu or follow us on social media.